Did you know that the average life expectancy in the United States in 1776 at the founding of our country was about 39 years old? And did you know that today the average life expectancy is about 79 years old? Yes, little by little through technology, healthcare advances, and other reasons, life expectancy has gone up and up and up. And now children who are born today, many are expected to reach the age 100. However, one thing researchers notice as they're digging into the numbers is a couple years ago, a disturbing thing happened, and that was for the first time in generations, the average life expectancy ticked down just a little bit. And so the researchers, they did a deep dive into the numbers. They're trying to process this and figure this out and what could possibly be the reason all the advances are still taking place. How could the average life expectancy in the United States go down? Well, as they dug into the numbers and they researched everything, what they discovered was this, that one group of people is affecting all the other groups of people when it comes to average life expectancy. That group, people between the ages of 19 and 34. They're dying, deaths of despair. It's what the sociologists call it, deaths of despair. These young people who look at the world and everything going on and they say, I just can't take this anymore. What difference does it make anyway? Can't have this. And so the, av so the average suicide rate has jumped 30% since the year 2000. It's been incredible. And so it actually has affected the average life expectancy in our country. So many people just saying, doesn't matter, won't change anything. They've lost hope. They've given in to despair. You know, we've all felt despair, haven't we? We've all been there in some form or another. Maybe you try to lose weight, you want to get healthy, and you run and you run and you run, and you work and you work and you work, and then, you know, you're tracking your calories, and you look, okay, how much did I burn? And you realize it was only about a handful of potato chips. And so you begin to ask yourself, was it really worth it? Was all that work really worth it? Is it going to make a difference anyway? Maybe you're in school, you're in math class, you're trying to figure out this problem, and so you've worked the formula, you've got, but for the life of you, you just can't seem to get the right answer. You just can't make this formula work, and so you begin to wonder, does it really matter? I mean, who uses math anyway? And you give up. Maybe you volunteer to serve at a homeless shelter, you're passing out food to feed the hungry, it's a great thing. But as you do it, all of a sudden this feeling hits you. There's just so many of them. They just keep coming. I fed one, but does it really make a difference? So we've all been there. We've all had these feelings of despair, these moments where we want to quit and we question, does this make any difference? I mean, is what I'm doing worth it? And would it surprise you to know that when life gets overwhelming, you're not alone? that Jesus has been there too. He's felt that too. As we continue our resurrection series, we're looking at these statements that Jesus has made from the cross. In the first three statements, I mean, they seem like statements that God would make as he's undergoing all this intense agony, this pain, this suffering. He's making these statements where he says, forgiven. He's telling a, a thief that he'll be with him in paradise. And he's looking out for his mom and he's doing all these things. And now this fourth statement, it really does reveal Jesus' humanity in all of this. I want you to see it. It's Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus says from the cross, And about the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to you at all? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Sure you have, maybe not with those words, but we all have. I have, you have, we all have, not just once, not just twice, but hundreds of times. Why? Because we hit these dead ends in life where we wonder, God, are you even there? Nothing seems to be working. How am I going to get out of this mess? I don't see a way out. It's those moments where you feel like no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you want to believe, God seems a little distant and you look at the circumstances of life and they seem big and they seem scary. And so you're tempted to give up. Notice the term I use there, tempted. You had the opportunity to do something else, right? You can continue to trust. You don't have to quit. You don't have to give up. You can keep believing even through the storms of life just like Jesus did. You know, this prayer that Jesus prays here, it's not an empty prayer. It's not Jesus just throwing in the towel saying, okay, God has forsaken me, the Father's forsaken me, I'm giving up. It's not an emotional response to everything that's going on. No, Jesus didn't just pray these words without thinking. This is a prayer that's taken right from Psalm 22. And what you need to understand is that in Jewish culture, when you begin a, a verse, especially a psalm, because it's this song, it's the song of prayer, that when you begin a verse this way, it's as if you're quoting the whole psalm. So as Jesus begins with Psalm 22, and he, uh, he, he says the first line of Psalm 22, you know that this is the psalm that's on his heart. It's as if he's quoted the whole thing. And one of the things we know about Psalm 22 is if you go, go and read it all, you see that, yes, it's an acknowledgement of despair, of this hopelessness, and ask, where is my help? But at the same time, it's an acknowledgement of deep anguish, but it's also expressing confidence, confidence that God the Father would hear him. Yeah, it's in the Psalms, what it says. It says, you have answered me, right there in Psalm 22. And Jesus, in quoting Psalm 22, he's affirming the depths of despair, but at the same time, he's saying that he has confidence in the Father. Maybe you're in a dark season of life. Maybe things are tough. Maybe they're difficult. And it's a crazy world we live in. And, you know, there's health concerns out there. Maybe within the rise of inflation, you've got financial concerns. Or maybe there's some relational tension in your life. And you're looking around, and it's just a dark, tough season. Jesus has been there. He understands. You, you wonder, hey, what am I doing? Is, is what I'm doing making any difference at all? The situation seems hopeless. Understand, Jesus has been there. Jesus, from the cross, he shows us that he understands all that, that he gets that hurt, he gets that pain, he gets that agony, he gets that despair. But he doesn't give in to it. He, he doesn't just go there and allow the darkness to win. He has confidence in the Father. And that's what we want to create too. That's what we want to develop in our own lives. We want to develop confidence in the Father. Well, how do you develop confidence? I mean, that's the question. How can you have this type of confidence that Jesus displays from the cross? 
Well, one of the ways you do that is you remind yourself of what God has done. Uh, maybe you make a thankful jar and you just record the blessings of life and, and the way that God has done things in your life. Maybe you go back through the scriptures and you just look here how God has been faithful time and time again to his people. Maybe it's a prayer journal and you go and you write all your prayers out and then you write when God has answered them and then you're able to look back and you're able to say, hey, wow, God does hear me. He, he does respond. He's not just turning a deaf ear to my cries. But you become proactive in developing that confidence in the Father. You do things to remind yourself that God is present, that he cares, that he hears, that he provides, that he's there. You may very well in your moment of despair want to give up, want, want to be done, want to just say, hey, why, why am I following God anyway? What is he doing anyway? But we don't. Why? Because we have confidence that in God our Father, just like Jesus did, Jesus had this unwavering confidence that his Father, God, is the God who keeps his promises. And when we think through all of our blessings, through the way that Jesus has worked in our own lives and how he's provided for us and how he's answered prayer and how he's worked in, in the past through the lives of his people, it develops our confidence. It develops our confidence even in those moments when life is its darkest, its coldest, its most harsh. You know what it's like to have confidence in somebody, don't you? You know what it's like when you, when you just know, hey, it doesn't matter what I say, this person just gets me, they understand me, I can, I can utter a statement and they're going to get it and they're just going to laugh right along with me. The author of Hebrews talks about this confidence that we have and, and he, he says it like this in Hebrews 4, 4, 14 and 16. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. See, we have confidence. Why? Because Jesus gets us. He understands us. He can sympathize with us. He understands what it is to feel the way you feel, to hurt the way you hurt. He gets that despair. He's, he's been tempted to think that, hey, <laughs> it's, it's not worth it. He's been tempted that way, just like you've been, just like I've been. But there's this confidence that even when I can't feel it, even when I can't see it, even when life is hard, that God has not abandoned you. You might want to think that way. But we have confidence that he has not. Jesus, he knows your heart. He knows everything you're going through. He gets it. And so we have confidence that we can go to him because he's been there and yet he's got a way out. One of the things that we don't often think about in relationship to sin and what sin does to us is that sin makes you numb. Sin makes you numb. It brings you to this point that you just can't feel or you can't sense what's happening. You, you don't have a, a good understanding for what's happening or for how close God is to you. Sin makes you numb to God's presence in your life. And you know how it happens, don't you? <laughs> they call it the law of diminishing returns where you go and you take one drink and then after a while one drink doesn't do it anymore so you take two and after a while two doesn't do it anymore and the next thing you know you're an alcoholic 
you take a hit of your drug of choice and after a while one hit doesn't do it you take two and then well you're an addict and it's it's with anything it all works this way and that's how sin works we become a little numb and so what do we need we need a little more stimulation a little more stimulation to get the same response that we got from the beginning and then the next thing we know is we're numb to it all it's the same thing in a relationship with god then when we ignore him or when we get our when we're distant from him because of our sin then we can't seem to feel him. We can't seem to locate him. We can't seem to sense his presence in our lives. And so we want to give up. Now, how do we locate that presence? What do we do? We trust. Even when it's numb, even when it's hard, you trust who he is. You trust his character. You know, Jesus from the cross, he took on all of the sin of humanity And when he's there in that darkness, as he cries out, there's this numbness to it all, this numbness to God's presence and where's the father and what's going on. But Jesus, in in uttering these words from the 22nd Psalm, he's saying, I still have confidence. I still have confidence that you're there. I still have confidence that you're a good father. (laughs) You know, this Psalm is often, or, or this verse that Jesus prays here is often one of the most misunderstood Uh, statements that Jesus makes from the cross because some people have read this and okay so the father has turned his back on Jesus he's turned his face away from the son why because Jesus has the sin of the world and God's too perfect to look on evil and so in that moment the father has to turn his face away from Jesus and allow allow him to suffer alone this is one of the consequences for for sin The teaching has become very popular, but it assumes that God the Father, who loves Jesus more than anybody else ever did, in that moment of need, when Jesus needed the Father most, that the Father turned his back on his Son. I mean, this is a moment of Jesus being obedient, right? That's what the author of Philippians says. He's obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is a, this is a time of Jesus doing exactly what he's come to do. And in that moment of obedience and yet having all the sin on him, the God, the Father, would turn his face away. Now, if you have a good dad, if you have a good father, if you have a relationship like that with your dad, then you know that in your time of need, when life is hard, when, when things are, are, are difficult, that your father would never just leave you to do it alone. He'd never just turn your back on you and say, hey, I'm sorry, son, I'm sorry, daughter, this is all you. I'm, I'm, I'm out. And God the Father, being a good father who loves you, who loves Jesus more than anybody else, he wouldn't leave him either. He wouldn't leave him either. And it's uh, just in that moment that you can't feel it. It's just in that moment when doubt creeps in and you begin to wonder, has he left? Is he there? Is he turning his back? Is he still going to be present? That's exactly what Jesus feels because in that moment you just have to trust it even when you can't feel it. In the darkness, when you're consumed with the sin, when everything seems numb for the first time, when Jesus cannot sense the presence of the Father. He was left to simply trust, to simply trust. And that's what he did. The statement tells us that. Um, why? Because back to Psalm 22, again, it's Jesus. He's, he's quoting the whole chapter here. And in Psalm 22:9, it says, God, 
You're the one who brought me up from the womb. You're the one who caused me to trust even when I was a nursing infant. In verse 21, it says, you have answered me. You have rescued me. And then in verse 24, if you need to, just go ahead and all caps, bold face this thing. You have not hidden your face from me, but you've turned toward me and you've heard my cries. Well, then you ask, why in the world is Jesus making this statement anyway? I mean, why is he asking the question, why have you forsaken me to begin with? Well, again, context is important. In Psalm 22, there's this parallel statement, which, which Jesus makes. He says, why are you so far from saving me, from responding to my groaning? The issue here is an issue of help. It's why, why won't you help me? Why, why are you letting my oppressors get the best of me? Well, why are you allowing this to happen to me? But then as you read the psalm, as you read Psalm 22, it becomes clear. It's a rhetorical question. The sufferer knows full well why the father is allowing him to undergo this, why the father is not intervening. But he's expressing his real despair, his real hurt, his real pain, his real agony, the real suffering, and the fact that he'd really rather not go through this, if at all possible. I mean, Jesus had said that just a little bit before. You remember, right? Jesus said, hey, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so from the cross, when that darkness, when that numbness is close and the Father seems distant, Jesus quotes this psalm. And he does so to express real despair, real hurt, real pain, but at the same time confidence that the Father is working even when Jesus can't see it. That even when he can't feel the presence of the Father, he knows the Father is there. That there's this trust that he hadn't hidden his face, but that he's turned to him in his cries that he will rescue him. And the Father doesn't turn away. He doesn't turn away from those groans and those cries. He didn't turn away from Jesus, and he doesn't turn away from you either. He makes this promise that I am with you always, that I will never leave you, I will never abandon you, I will never forsake you. And so how do you respond to all that? <laughs> how do you respond when you're in a place of darkness, when you're in a place of hurt, when you're in a place of pain? Well, you respond in ministry in hope to see God continue to work. That's what the Psalm 22 says, that even though the sufferer is in this place of feeling helpless, he's not going to act that way. He's not just going to become a victim and say, oh, well, it's all over. No, on the contrary, he says that I'm going to speak of your name, that I'm going to praise your name, that I'm going to gather in the congregation, we're going to sing together, that I'm going to perform my vows. He's, he's going to do all the things that he's supposed to do. So you get in this dark place, you get in this tough spot, and something inside you is telling you, just pull back, just be done. You need, you need a time of just uh, oh, rest. You're not going to be effective now. You've got all this stuff going on in your life. And Jesus, his message in this fourth statement from the cross is press in. Continue to make disciples. Fulfill your vows. Gather with the congregation to worship. When life is hard, more than ever, that's the time to make disciples. When life is hard, you make disciples. Why? Because there's something about suffering that just brings us together. There's something about seeing somebody suffer that just elicits this compassion. And then in your suffering, 
when they know you, that you're in this point of suffering and then you're in this point of darkness, when life is hard and yet you still have joy and yet you still have confidence, you still have trust, there's still this goodness about you. There's not complaining and criticizing and defending and pointing the finger. There's not all that. There's just this optimism, this hope, this joy. Well, there's something about that that's really attractive because it's just really rare and it gives you an opportunity to speak. See, when you speak and, and you minister just in times of joy, in times of goodness, in times of prosperity, well, prosperity breeds competition. You know, when you're able to say, hey, you know, here's everything, it's going great, 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 great. Well, then what does the other person want to say? Well, hey, my life's really great too. I mean, look at this, look at this, look at this. Or they say, man, you know, if I had it like you, yeah, I'd be praising God too. But you don't understand my life. You don't get me because here's all the stuff that I've gone through. Isn't that the amazing thing about Jesus? That we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, who gets the struggles, who gets the hurt. See, that's the thing. There's something about ministering from your suffering that makes you very effective. Some of the most effective times to make disciples is when life is hard. For instance, consider the Apostle Paul. I mean, he lived a hard, tough life. He was no stranger to struggle, no stranger to pain, no stranger, stranger to despair or suffering. He often found himself in prison for sharing the gospel. His life was often threatened by those who opposed his message. And yet, in his second letter to Timothy, probably the last letter that Paul wrote when Paul knew that, hey, my time here is short, that death is right around the corner. He talks about his suffering in that letter to Timothy. He writes as if he knows, hey, I've run the race. The race is almost over here, Timothy. Now it's you who needs to take the baton of faith. But he's, he's still making disciples. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, right as he's talking about his suffering, he says this, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Yeah, Paul could read the tea leaves. He knew the handwriting was on the wall, that his time on earth was short that Nero would soon order his execution. And yet with all of this facing Paul, he says, I know in whom I have believed I am confident. And so he's going to spend his final days pouring into Timothy, continuing to make disciples. Remember, Jesus was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. He was tempted yet without sins. One of the reasons we go to Jesus when life is hard, when times are dark, when we're in that despair, when we're suffering, when we're going through everything that it is we're going through, and we're saying, Jesus, this is how it hurts. This is the pain. This is what I'm feeling. One of the reasons we go to him is because he gets all of that. Is because he really can sympathize with us. He knows that darkness. He knows the coldness of this world. He knows just the harsh realities of life. He knows all those hurts. But more than that, he also knows how to overcome it. 
Jesus. He, he knows how to navigate through all that and not give in to the temptation to just cash in the chips, to just say, hey, I'm out. I'm not going to follow the Lord anymore. Life would be easier if I just did this. He knows the temptation to just, hey, you know, maybe I've been called to make disciples, but that's not me. That's too hard. That's uncomfortable. It's led to a lot of pain. I'm out. Jesus, he gets all that. But he knows how to navigate through it and he can lead us so we can do well. So that even in those moments of darkness, when we're tempted, we too don't have to sin. See, Jesus, he gives us this confidence. It's a confidence that's not in our own strength. It's not in the things that we typically trust in, like our talent, our skill, our wealth, or anything like that. No, what gives us confidence is the character of the person who made the promise that he would be with us. God keeps his promises. Even when we don't, even when we turn our face away, the father never turns his face away. So in times of despair, we go to Jesus because he knows the way out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is Jesus' prayer from the cross. It's a familiar prayer of despair, one that we've all been there a time or two. And it's a prayer that you pray when you think things will never change. Things will never get better. I don't see a way out from this mess. It's a prayer that you pray when you feel like giving up. Jesus, he'd been there. He understands that. And he's prayed that prayer, yet without sin, he didn't give up. He didn't let the darkness overtake him. He didn't become a victim. Because even when life was coldest, even when life was its darkest, even when life was most harsh, when there was a numbness to the presence of the Father, Jesus still trusted the Father. Because he knew the Father who made the promise, the Father who gave the promise, is the Father who keeps the promise. And in this crazy world, with all kind of stuff changing all the time, and there's all kind of strife and hurt and worries and concerns, God's made some promises to you. He's made promises that he's going to be with you, made promises that he's not going to abandon you, that he's not going to forsake you. And the God who makes those promises keeps those promises. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are true to your word. And God, also that your son Jesus, well, that he just gets us, that he, he knows how we feel because he's been there. But God, he does more than just sympathize. He, he's able to provide a way out for us so that we don't have to be overcome by the temptations of this world. So God, help us to trust. And even in the midst of our struggles and our suffering and our pain, that we continue to make disciples because perhaps that's when we'd be most effective. But we recognize we need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.